Blog Talk Radio. Mama 
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaki Tanda. Wawaka Yembe, Wena Menshi. of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, November 21st, uh, 2021. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. This program uh, features our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the ongoing media campaign in the United States to misinform the public about the actual developments inside the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. In the Republic of Sudan, the military junta has reinstated the interim Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak, although this is being rejected by other activists uh, within the mass democracy movement. China's foreign ministry has declared that the independence of Taiwan will never be accepted uh, by Beijing. An international trade crisis is being worsened due to the conflict between the United States and China. In the second hour, we continue to look deeper into the lifetimes, contributions, and the assassination of Malcolm X, Hajj Malik El-Shabazz. We'll listen uh, to two uh, rare archival audio files and a contemporary uh, segment on the exoneration of two of the falsely convicted men uh, tried in the murder 
uh, during a murder trial during 1966. Finally, we review some of the most pressing and burning issues taking place in Africa and across the world. Uh, these and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with uh, Tony Allen from the West African state of Nigeria from the album entitled Film of Life. Let's listen in.
Don't take the boat, Johnny. 
Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and that was uh, the music of the legendary Tony Allen. Uh, the album entitled Film of Life, uh, Tony Allen, percussionist uh, from uh, the West African state of Nigeria. Great uh, Pan-African music emanating uh, from uh, the West Africa region. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, our lead story, and these are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. The lead story deals with the current uh, situation in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. The Joe Biden administration's policy towards Africa in general, and in Ethiopia in particular, is misguided. It is problematic and it has failed to realize the latter's political dynamics and public will. Renowned female personalities have commented, and this is from uh, today's Ethiopian Herald, the state-sponsored uh, newspaper in Addis Ababa. The article goes on to say that in a webinar discussion organized by local media, well-known uh, women academicians and a journalist claim that Africans are increasingly dismayed by the U.S., uh, in favor of the terrorist TPLF and its support uh, for the insurgency. When you look at U.S. policy on Africa, it is dying. The article goes on to point out that the Atlantic Council's Africa Center Director, uh, Brawin Bruton, uh, said the manner Washington is handling the current situation in Ethiopia and its mischievous approach towards African interests is largely objected uh, to by Ethiopians and other African diasporans. The Biden administration is wrongly accusing and punishing Ethiopia's legitimate government for fabricated human rights abuses and its refusal to sit down with the terrorist enterprise for negotiations. Meanwhile, the U.S. government took punitive measures against neighboring Eritrea and revoked Ethiopia's Africa Growth and Opportunity Act of GOA privileges. It has taken no measure against the terrorist TPLF. If I were the National Security Council of the U.S., I would really worry at this moment. As to burden, uh, the U.S. enjoyed strong military cooperation and has committed enormous financial support uh, for the group's infamous forced atrocities on civilian communities in various parts of the country. The Biden administration's indifference to the TPLF crimes against humanity is a potential danger for democratic governance and attested the former quest to maintain its hegemony uh, in the strategic uh, Horn of Africa. N noting uh, Ethiopia's democracy could not differ from other states, Basile's School of International Affairs Director and International Affairs Professor, Anne Fitzgerald, said that legitimacy, participation, transparency, and freedom are largely witnessed in the country's six general elections. The elections were largely peaceful, and contending parties had the opportunity to conduct media debates and introduce alternate policies to the electorate. Meanwhile, a significant number of local and international observers asserted the polls were free, fair, and credible. And uh, you can uh, read this article in its uh, entirety uh, over uh, the Pan-African Newswire website. And in other news uh, taking place uh, on the African continent, in the neighboring Republic of Sudan, uh, it was announced uh, earlier today on Sunday 
on November the 21st that Sudan's military leaders had reinstated the deposed interim Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdad. Sudan's uh, deposed uh, interim Prime Minister uh, has apparently signed a deal with the military earlier today uh, that will see him reinstated almost a month after a military coup put him under house arrest. A key pro-democracy group that has uh, mobilized had dismissed the deal as a form of betrayal. The country's uh, top general, Abdel Fattah Burhan, said in a televised statement uh, that Abdallah Hamdok will lead an independent technocratic cabinet until elections uh, can be held. It remains unclear how much power the government would actually hold. It will still remain under the military oversight. It also remains unclear whether any political parties or pro-democracy groups have signed off on the agreement. The deal expects the uh, military to release government officials and politicians arrested since the October 25th uh, coup d'etat. The coup, uh, more than two years after a popular uprising, forced the removal of longtime President Omar al-Bashir and his uh, government, has drawn uh, international criticism. The signing of this deal opens the door wide enough to address all the challenges of the transitional period, said Hamdok, speaking at the signing ceremony broadcast on state TV. Sudanese have been taking uh, to the streets and the masses since the military takeover, which upended the country's fragile transition to democracy. The agreement uh, comes just days after doctors said at least 15 people were killed by live gunfire during the anti-coup demonstrations. Hamdok has been held under house arrest by military leaders for weeks. The deal also stipulates that an investigation shall be conducted to identify those responsible for the killing and injuring of civilians and troops that marked protests following the coup. And you can also read this article as well in its entirety over the uh, Pan-African Newswire. Uh, the Pan-African Newswire has been covering uh, the situation in Sudan extensively, uh, even prior uh, to the coup uh, that took place <clears throat> on uh, October uh, 25th of this year. In other news, <clears throat> the Chinese uh, government uh, has no intention of seeking conflict nor confrontation with any country. And whether China and the U.S. handle their relationship well will define the future of the world. And that's according to Chinese state counselor and foreign minister Yang Wang Yi uh, said at a summit uh, yesterday, urging some politicians to stop playing the Taiwan card. China and the U.S., as the largest developing country and largest developed country, must handle their bilateral relationship well, which will affect the future of the world, Wang said noting that the cooperation and win-win ties are the correct approach. China and the U.S. have their interests deeply integrated. A zero-sum mentality with a stance of protectionism or isolation will only hurt both sides, Wong said, urging the two countries to work together for a stable development. Only solidarity brings hope. The divergence leads us to nowhere. Uh, noting that China has no intentions of having conflict or confrontation with other countries and that it practices true multilateralism and safeguards the UN-based international system. <clears throat> the comments uh, were made after uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping 
laid out uh, principles, uh, three principles and four priorities for growing U.S.-China ties in a new era during the during a virtual meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden on Tuesday morning, uh, Beijing time, during which uh, the Chinese leader drew red lines over fundamental issues like Taiwan. Uh, Xi also warned that the intention of some Americans to use Taiwan to contain China is, quote, just like playing with fire, unquote, and that, quote, whoever plays with fire will get burnt, unquote. He went on to say that, quote, we'll seek reunification in a peaceful way by making maximum efforts, but China won't tolerate any successionist behavior of separating the country. We won't accept any attempt of creating two Chinas or one China, one Taiwan on the global stage, Wang said yesterday, emphasizing that China's stance of opposing uh, Taiwan independence has been crystal clear, and it takes much resolute measures in stopping successionist attempts. Just one day uh, before, uh, Wong reiterated China's stance on the China-U.S. relationship. Chinese ambassador to the U.S., King King Gong, also further uh, collaborated on a bilateral relationship, uh, which is seen as the most consequential international relationship today. At a recent dialogue with the Brookings Institution, King's speech at the dialogue uh, was entitled, Two Different Countries, One International System. And finally, Australian Defense Minister Peter Dutton on Thursday replied uh, to a warning uh, on his threat towards China. He said, quote, the words of a bully, not an international player. According to Hu Jinjin in today's uh, Global Times, It says, I would like to respond to him again. The U.S., which Australia is preparing to follow uh, when a war breaks out in the Taiwan Straits, is the world's bully, and Australia's role is like a barking dog. Last weekend, Dutton said it would be inconceivable for Australia not to support the United States in an action if the latter decided to intervene militarily should a war break out in the Taiwan Straits. On Monday, I tweeted, Quote, if Australian troops uh, come to fight in the Taiwan Straits, it is unimaginable that China won't carry out heavy attacks on them and the Australian military facilities that support them. So Australia better be prepared to sacrifice for Taiwan Island and the United States. Dutton is one of Australia's most radical anti-China politicians. He has been a member of the parliament for 20 years and is also well known uh, as an Australian big mouth. He has not only repeatedly attacked and smeared China, but also uttered vicious words against Australia's neighboring countries, such as Australia was taking the trash out by deporting criminals born in New Zealand, which caused a public uproar. In China, I am of the outspoken people, but also all my critical voices refuse severe provocation from outside the outside world towards China. Chinese people generally do not stir up trouble first, Whoever provokes us uh, must be prepared to be hit back. Over the past two years, Australian officials constantly made public statements or hinted they will send troops to join the fight once a war breaks out in the Taiwan Straits. Some of them clamor that Australian soldiers should be prepared to fight. In the face of such an irrational Australia, shouldn't China be prepared with an iron fist and to punch it hard when needed, teaching it a thorough lesson. 
And that's uh, from the author uh, who is the editor-in-chief of the Global Times published in Beijing. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire is the only uh, daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of these pressing and burning issues, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The program can be shared with other potential listeners. All you have to do uh, is copy and paste the links uh, into emails and send those emails out to other potential listeners. You can copy and paste the links onto blogs and websites. The links can also be shared through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, this special edition of our program for today, uh, which is Sunday, November the 21st, uh, 2021. And uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, over the last uh, week, uh, there has been uh, considerable news information once again on the assassination of Malcolm X. Um, Of course, uh, the assassination took place on February 21st, 1965. Uh, That is uh, almost 57 years ago, Uh, yet uh, many questions keep resurfacing in regard uh, to uh, the assassination of Malcolm X. And, uh, of course, uh, we have been following uh, this situation uh, for a considerable uh, amount of time. And, uh, of course, uh, we are here uh, today uh, to continue uh, that discussion. First, though, uh, we want to uh, play you an interview uh, with uh, Malcolm X uh, an interview uh, from uh, 1964 uh, with uh, Ed Harvey uh, over WCAU in Philadelphia. And, uh, of course, uh, this is after Malcolm X's break uh, with the Nation of Islam. The uh, cases uh, which uh, were discussed uh, this week uh, dealt uh, with the false conviction of two uh, members of the Nation of Islam in connection with the assassination of Malcolm X. And uh, one of the uh, persons who were captured uh, at the Audubon Ballroom in the aftermath of the assassination, uh, Talmadge Hare, confessed during the 1966 trial, and then later in 1981 uh, gave up the names of other individuals who were involved in the assassination. Of course, since then, there has never been a prosecution of any of those people uh, who were named uh, by Hale, who actually confessed uh, to the killing in uh, 1966 during the prosecution. Nonetheless, uh, Butler and Johnson uh, were convicted as well, even though there was no real material evidence uh, that they were involved. And even uh, Hale himself denied uh, that they were involved. Uh, he took responsibility but denied that Johnson and Butler were involved And, of course, uh, Johnson and Butler uh, have been vindicated. Uh, Johnson, of course, has uh, since joined the ancestors, and um, Butler is uh, in his 80s now and uh, did appear in court this week uh, for the expungement uh, of his record, uh, where he spent uh, over 20 years in prison. And, uh, of course, uh, this came in the aftermath of the Netflix uh, documentary on Who Killed Malcolm X, uh, which... uh, came out uh, last year, and other work that is being done, uh, recognized and not so recognized. Uh, So we're going to listen to this uh, interview uh, with uh, Ed Harvey in Philadelphia on WCAU in 1964. Now, you said control politics and control politicians. Uh, I mean, uh, is this what you really mean? Uh, Well, I mean it it like this, that I think uh, that the, the politicians in the white neighborhood are controlled by the whites in that neighborhood. Most 
no white community would allow uh, the politician in its community to be controlled by someone outside the community who doesn't have the good of that community at heart. Whereas in the Negro community, as a rule, the politician is part of the political machine. The political machine is white, and the political machine isn't uh, uh, really concerned with the conditions that exist in the Negro community, only to the extent that being concerned helps the whole overall objective of that, of that political machine. So the only way to get uh, real progress in the Negro community is to make our people at the mass level conscious of politics and, and that which politics is supposed to produce for us. Once they can see what the politician is supposed to produce, then they themselves can throw their weight behind the politician who's producing. And it is, and it is the responsibility of the politician who represents the community to go out here and eliminate the desegregated school system. You don't have to pick at a school. The mayor is responsible. The governor is responsible. The politicians are responsible. So it's our intention to make our people conscious of this. And just, just to give an example, I was in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago when they were debating whether or not to let the, the uh, Civil Rights Bill come to the floor, listening to Dirksen and some of these others debate whether uh, the Negro is qualified to be a citizen or a human or whatever it was they had in mind. And one of the things I noticed in the back of the Senate gallery, Senate, uh, uh, gallery was, uh, or the Senate floor was a huge map which shows the distribution of Negroes in this country. And, and, and oddly, in, in the areas where Negroes uh, were the most densely uh, populated, where the areas were most densely populated by Negroes, these were the senators and the congressmen doing the most to stop civil rights legislation. Whereas if the Negroes in these areas were permitted to vote, they could sweep out of office the same segregationists and racists who are now in control of the government. Well, if you feel this strongly, then why don't you, uh, why don't you run for office? As I understand it, you, uh, you control a, a, a pretty good segment up there in Harlem. You, last time you were with me, I asked you what the membership was. You were then with uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and you didn't want to tell me. Now that you're not with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, could you tell me what the uh, membership is uh, Membership is uh, in Harlem? I mean, what percentage of Harlem? Uh, well, I, I, can, I'll only, I can only answer you like this. All yeah. of our people who are oppressed, exploited, dissatisfied, and impatient are thinking along the same lines today, politically, economically, socially, and otherwise. Philosophically so that, and otherwise. This takes in a pretty good hunk of Harlem. Certainly. Well, not only Harlem, Philadelphia Well, I'm talking Harlem. about from uh, your your particular, your immediate home right now. Yes. You don't have Florida or California yet. We haven't given that to you yet, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. The thing that, uh, I am one black man, uh, Mr. Harvey, who doesn't think that the white man is going to give up anything. What the black man gets, he's going to have to fight for it. He's going to have to earn it. He's going to have to take it. Nothing will be given to him. Well, then and you say you don't advocate violence. And if any, no. Well, uh, how you, what's fighting if it isn't violence? Well, uh, I think you'll find a fight going on in the Senate right now. And, then, and they haven't gotten violent yet, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they've gotten uh, philosophically violent. Uh, if any time you have a, a government, and I think 16 of the senatorial committees that control the government, uh, 10 of them are in the hands of Southern senators. Uh, out of the 20 congressional committees that control the government, 12, 12 of them are in the hands of Southern congressmen. Now, here you have the uh, uh, 10 out of 12 committeemen, uh, 10 out of uh, out of six, 10 out of 16 committeemen at the senatorial level are Southern segregationists. 12 out of 20 committeemen at the congressional level are Southern senators, and they're going to tell us that the South lost the war. Why, the committees that govern the government are in the hands of Southern segregationists. And the, the president himself is from a state that is a state of discrimination and segregation. He's, the, he's in the same category with Eastland and Ellender and all of the rest. So when Negroes become conscious of politics, 
politically mature and they begin to see the con game that's taking place today, especially where the Democratic Party is concerned. Because it was the Negroes, I think out of the, uh, out of the uh, representatives, 257 of them are Democrat and only uh, 177 of them are Republican. Two-thirds of the Congress is controlled by the Democratic Party. Out of the, out of the 100 senators, 67 of them are Democrat and only 33 are Republican. Uh, two-thirds of the Senate, Senate is controlled by uh, the Democratic Party. And it is the Negro vote that has kept the Democratic Party in power and has kept it in, party in, in the power in Washington, D.C. Despite the fact that the Negro puts the Democratic Party first, the record shows that the, Negro, that the Democratic Party puts the Negro last. And the Democratic Party is able to fool the Negro by telling him that it is the Dixocrats in the South that, who are doing it, and a Dixocrat is nothing but a Democrat in disguise. The same man who's, ho who's over the entire Democratic Party is over the Dixocrats as well as the Democrats. And when Negroes begin to wake up and analyze this political situation, then the Negro is in a position to bring about a bloodless revolution in America by, with the ballot. He'll be in a position to sweep out of office these Southern segregationists who occupy strategic positions over strategic committees. And this in itself will revolutionize America's foreign policy as well as America's domestic policy, and it might save America. But if it is not done with the ballot, then it's going to have to be done with the bullet. I don't know why you don't run and just say all this on the Senate floor, uh, Malcolm. We'll, we'll be back with Malcolm X in just a minute. Shaker, it's a one beer to have when you're having more than one. Shaker, pleasure doesn't fade even when your thirst is done. The most rewarding flavor in this man's world. People who are having fun. Shaper is the one beer to have when you're having more than one. Elizabeth Taylor says in the new issue of Look Magazine, the children know that Richard and I love each other and that everything is going to work out all right. Now in Look, see Elizabeth Taylor, her six-year-old daughter Liza, and her new husband Richard Burton. In Look, you'll find out for yourself why Miss Taylor says daughter Liza and Burton are great buddies. You'll read about the unique word game they play as a family. And you'll find out in Look, six full-color pages of Elizabeth Taylor and Liza romping through a vacation in tropical Mexico. Why does Elizabeth Taylor say Liza has a bit of the miracle about her? Everything about her has been extraordinary. In what way is Liza like her father, Mike Todd? How does Liza react to her mother's fame? Get the answers in Look. In this Look exclusive, you'll see one of the world's most beautiful women and one of the world's liveliest six-year-olds as they share precious moments together. It's in the new issue of Look, biggest-selling, most vital magazine in its field. Get Look today. Our guest is Brother Malcolm, or Malcolm X. We're talking to you from Convention Hall, the travel vacation and outdoorsman show. Malcolm, what... Uh... What is your opinion uh, uh, as a politician uh, of Adam Clayton Powell? Well, Adam Clayton Powell probably is uh, the only Negro politician of national stature who is completely independent of any political machine. He's in a more powerful position politically than any, than any other Negro politician, primarily because the Negro in New York is different from Negroes anywhere else in the country in that they are exposed to... Uh, such a, uh, uh, a great deal of news. The United Nations is there. They're more uh, highly sophisticated where politics and international politics are concerned than any other Negroes in the country. Then, and, and for that reason, it is less, uh, they are less influenced by the propaganda from the daily news media when it's unleashed against another Negro. So, so that you think that this has all been 
misleading and oh, yes. uh, misconstrued and everything that uh, we hear that uh, happens with him in Puerto Rico and Europe. I mean, this is, uh, no, this is completely... No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the, despite all of the uh, negative aspects of Mr. Powell's uh, daily life that is uh, uh, ma uh, magnified by the press and projected as his whole image instead of only a part of his image, mm -hmm. the Negro is able to look and see this and realize what is being done or, or the effort that's being made. And uh, they overlook it so that it keeps Powell in the best way for Powell to remain in Washington, D.C. is for the white press to continue to attack him. This automatically gets the Negro support. You, uh, you said earlier that you don't recruit, uh, and yet uh, Cassius Clay says that you converted him, which is in a form recruiting. Well, only he and I are friends, and the, it wasn't an active uh, effort that was made to uh, recruit him, but Cassius has been a Muslim for four or five years. And uh, I, he and I happened to be very good friends. I was with him in Miami before the fight. I had a chance to study him. Cassius has more depth than is uh, realized by most people. He's a very, very deep-thinking person. He has strong convictions. He's more intelligent than, they give him, intelligent than they give him credit for. In fact, Cassius actually made Sonny Liston whip himself. Not only did he beat Sonny Liston, he beat the press. He beat the Miami Boxing Commission. He, he even beat the medical examination, the examiner who gave him his uh, examination before the fight. And I think that when people realize that he did this with his brain, then they will somewhat get a better idea of how, how brainy the man actually is. And, in, and also, in my opinion, Cassius is a good example of the new type of Negro that's coming into existence in America today. The very fact that Cassius will say, I am the greatest. Negroes don't say this. Negroes have been fed the type of uh, brainwashing that America is an expert at to the point where most of them have an inferiority complex and don't want to be superior. They don't want to be the greatest. They just want to be great. Or they don't want to be uh, supreme. They just want to be equal, you know. So uh, Cassius represents this young, new type thinking Negro today who feels that he is uh, within himself just as capable of becoming the greatest or as great or whatever else anybody else is. He might, I don't think he's the greatest poet, or ever will be, I'll tell you that. Uh, do you? Well, there are different forms of poetry. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's, that's uh, is for sure. Uh, I, uh, I've got a couple of more. i tell you what, let's get the business out of the way so we can go right straight through and not uh, be hampered anymore. And uh, so we'll be back with Malcolm X in just one minute. Right now, you know, many people who pay big money for automatic washer to simplify wash day... They complicate it right all over again. First, they use a detergent for a clean wash. Then, for a soft wash, they have to stop the washer before the final rinse cycle. Measure. Then they add a fabric softener, and then they have to start the washer all over again. So why waste the time, the trouble, and the money? Change to Instant Fells Soap Granules, the laundry product with its own built-in fabric softener. Instant Fells keeps clothes soft. It gets clothes clean. You get a softer wash without the bother and expense of adding a fabric softener to the final rinse. So get Instant Fells with a built-in fabric softener. Another Fells product with something extra to make your work easier. You'll find Instant Fells with a built-in fabric softener at your Acme supermarket. And remember, it's there that you get low prices plus S&H screen stamps. So stop at Acme. While you're there, be sure to get Instant Fells, another Fells product with something extra to make your work easier. Brother Malcolm, you... Uh, you just extolled the virtues of uh, Cassius Clay, the fact that he is smart and he's uh, brilliant. Uh, as I understand it, he's uh, sticking with Elijah Muhammad. He's not following you in, the, in uh, this new movement. I, I'm happy that he is. In fact, uh, when I made the move that I did, if you read, I 
stated at that time that it was my hope and desire that all of the followers of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad would stay with him. I'm not uh, interested in carrying on any kind of competition against him, but rather to work among the non-Muslim so-called Negroes uh, in a program that doesn't have any religious restrictions, but it is designed to give all of our people an opportunity to become actively involved in an action program that will eliminate the social, political, and economic evils that exist in our community. Uh, uh, and uh, one thing that must be stressed, you see, I, as I said, I didn't lead the Nation of Islam. I never would have left it of my own volition. And when I was put out, I, not only was I put out, but uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's only son, who is a minister, uh, who formerly was a minister right here in Philadelphia, Minister Wallace D. Muhammad, he was put out right along with me. And, uh, for similar reasons? For about the same reason, yes. Uh. And uh, so, but I don't think that this in any way serves any purpose. The main thing we're interested in is getting uh, an active program on the road, an action program on the road, that all of our people can take part in and uh, get this uh, job accomplished, get the problem solved. Well, now, you say that Martin Luther King and uh, other civil rights leaders have made uh, no headway, or certainly not uh, the headway that you want to see made. What headway do you think that, that you have made? Uh, because you've been talking for a long while. You've been quoted in uh, national publications. You've been on network television and radio. Now, what headway have you made? Well, most people give uh, us the credit for the headway that Martin Luther King and the nonviolent movement has made. Uh, the same when, uh, when Jomo Kenyatta was in prison in, uh, in Kenya, uh, Tom and Boya became very famous, not because the colonial powers loved Tom and Boya, but Tom and Boya represented the lesser of two evils. Uh, Kenyatta was supposed to have been the head of the Mau Mau. So that uh, when it came to choosing between the lesser of two evils, they uh, would uh, go along with Mboya. Here in this country, the entire nonviolent civil rights struggle has been listened to to a degree and has been given some token, token recognition and some token gains only to keep the Negro from, in, from becoming involved in anything that was too militant and, and that which was non-nonviolent. An example, on uh, February the, uh, on May the 15th of, uh, uh, of last year, on page 26 of the New York Times, uh, it quoted President Kennedy as telling some Southern uh, uh, news editors that they had to give some kind of token gains to the moderate Negro leadership in order to enhance its image to keep the Negroes from going or becoming involved with the Negro extremists, and he specified at that time the Muslims. So what, what's happening here? It's showing that the pre late president himself uh, was trying to get these Southern segregationists to give some token gains to the moderate Negro civil rights groups, not because uh, their cause was just, but because in so doing, it would enhance their leadership image among the Negro masses and keep the Negro masses from going with the more militant Negro group. So uh, the gains that were received by these moderate Negro leaders, they only received them because uh, the fear of the threat that was posed by groups that were more militant than they. Are you anti-Semitic? Anti-Semitic. You've uh, met many of the things that I've read about you, and you've made a mention a couple of times about the Jews and everything, and I'm wondering if you are personally anti-Semitic. No. Uh, how can I be anti-Semitic when the Arabs are semi Half the Muslim world are, is Semitic. If I was anti-Semitic, I'd be anti-Arab and anti-everything uh, yeah. else. No, I think this, that in this country, there's one mistake that the Jews make. Uh, they put themselves in a position where whenever anybody gives an objective analysis of the role that they play, uh, they defend themselves by accusing you of being anti-Semitic. And, and uh, a Negro is not anti-Semitic when he says that 
the, the man who's exploiting him in his community is white because it is a white man who owns all the stores. Now, is it a, an accident that these whites who own these stores are Jewish? If it's an accident, then uh, the fact that he says the Jew on the corner is exploiting me isn't an anti-Semitic statement. It's just more descriptive of the man who's exploiting him. Is it true that the, uh, the leader of the Nazi party was given an honored position at one of your, uh, the leader of the Nazi party in America was given an honored position at one of your meetings? Uh, there was a, a convention held in Chicago to which was invited anyone who wanted to come. And uh, this particular person whom you mentioned came uh, along with other whites. And uh, at that meeting, they were anybody who wanted to contend with Mr. Muhammad or support Mr. Muhammad was given an opportunity to do so. He stood, up and he stood up on the floor in front of the podium and expressed himself, but he did not meet any receptiveness uh, among black people. Nobody who is a Nazi or who in any way advocates white supremacy or who is in any way anti-black will ever get any reception among black people. I don't make any distinction between a, 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 a Nazi racist or, or, uh, or any other kind of racist. They're all racists where we're concerned. But I don't think you should put any weight on the Nazis. That there aren't enough of them in this country. They're not the ones who, who created the segregated school system that, you, that our people are suffer, suffering under. They're not the ones who are behind the segregating housing pattern. So the Nazis, are, uh, uh, if, if that many of them exist, are only being used as scapegoats. The ones, who, the ones who are really responsible are these that call themselves Democrats and Republicans and, and other lily-white organizations. Malcolm, we only have a minute left. Uh, you, you are a very... Uh, a very uh nice fellow to talk to because you do talk. That's one thing. You have an engaging smile. Do you still consider yourself the angriest Negro in America? I think a man can be at his angriest when he's smiling. Is that right? I have a little difficulty smiling myself. When Not I'm a mad. black man in America. The black man in America has lived in such a, a, an, an ambiguous society that he has, he has, he has, he has uh, been forced to develop a very flexible, acrobatic face. And when you find a black man smiling, it's not always from his heart. And I think the day that the white people realize this, then they'll take a more sincere effort to eliminate some of these injustices. Our guest has been Brother Malcolm, or Malcolm X, uh, who I understand got a mere three hours sleep last night just to be here with us today. And for that, I thank you very much for thank joining you. us, Malcolm uh, X, on WCAU. Welcome back. And uh, that's... Uh, was a classic uh, Malcolm X uh, interview uh, with uh, a news uh, host uh, in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, during uh, 1964. And uh, we have been uh, discussing uh, the circumstances leading up to and now the assassination of uh, Malcolm X uh, due to the fact that uh, just uh, several days ago in a court in New York City, too, of the three people who were convicted in the 1966 trial of the um, those uh, who were accused of assassinating Malcolm X uh, more than a year before. He was assassinated on February 21st of 1965. Uh, three were convicted. One confessed. The other two maintained their innocence. And the other two who did maintain their innocence and uh, was not, of course, uh, identified by the person in the trial who did confess to being one of the assassins uh, were uh, finally vindicated uh, by the courts. And, of course, uh, with the cooperation of the prosecutors, but uh, this, of course, was done at the aegis of the Innocence Project. And also um, various investigations that have gone on for decades 
uh, into the assassination of uh, Malcolm X. So all of these contradictions uh, came out uh, in the days and months and subsequent years uh, since the assassination. So there are more information, more data in this regard, but um, it appears uh, that uh, the same train of thought is uh, relevant, that, that, that there was a conspiracy, uh, that it was uh, endorsed and assisted at the highest levels, not only through New York law enforcement, uh, through the corporate media, but also uh, through the uh, federal government. And uh, right now we're going to listen to a, another rare archival audio file. This uh, involves Tony Brown, uh, who uh, was for many years host of the Black Journal, the National Black Journal Program, and later of Tony Brown's journal. Uh, he interviewed uh, Talmadge Hare uh, in 1981 uh, when he gave up the names of the other participants uh, in the assassination at the Audubon Ballroom on February 21st of 1965. And, um, of course, uh, in this uh, audio file, the actual names are beeped out, but uh, in subsequent documents, uh, these people have been identified. So let's listen uh, to uh, this um, interview and lead into the interview uh, by Tony Brown, who in fact um, discusses uh, in this uh, segment uh, his involvement uh, as a national television host since 1972 when he did his first uh, investigation into who killed Malcolm X. Let's listen in. For more than 10 years now, I've been conducting journalistic investigations into the death of Malcolm X. And unlike the assassinations of John and Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King to some extent, the assassinations of Malcolm X gets very little official notice. However, each new development, while seeming to further complicate the mystery, does seem to shed new light and insights. Recently, the only man convicted of killing Malcolm, who admits that he is guilty, gave us his first film interview. And the interview, after 14 years of silence, provided a new way of looking at the case. I'm Tony Brown. In a moment, the assassin. An excellent debater and orator, Malcolm X became the verbal whip of Mr. Muhammad and the Muslims. Well, sir, if we have sat around here for the past hundred years begging all of the white political hypocrites and every president that has taken office for some kind of freedom or some kind of justice and some kind of equality, and we today yet don't have it, then I think you can easily see that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is right when he says that the only way the black man can be free is when he has a land of his own and a government of his own and an economy of his own, an industry of his own, so he can do the things for himself that he now is waiting and begging the white man to do for him and never gets done. No matter what happens, we don't teach you to turn the other cheek. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the south, and we don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the north. We teach you to obey the law. We teach you to carry yourselves in, in a respectable way. But at the same time, we teach you that anyone who puts his hand on you, do your best to see that he doesn't put it on anybody else. Whatever position I've attained, as a Muslim, I've attained it through his guidance and through his help. Uh, but during the 90 days that I've been silent, I have come to the conclusion that uh, I can best help spread the 
solution that the, and the diagnosis that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad gives of the so-called Negro problem in this country by continuing to remain out of the nation of Islam and working on my own without restriction in the way that I think I best know how. was formerly called Black Journal on Public Television. Our first show on Malcolm's death was broadcast on February 22, 1972. An early edition of the New York Times dated February 22, 1965, and an article headlined, Malcolm X shot to death at rally here, said, quote, the police indicated two suspects were being questioned, end quote. One of those suspects was identified as Thomas Hagen. In a later paragraph, the capture of the second suspect was described, quote, Patrolman Thomas Hoy, 22, said he had been stationed outside the 166th Street entrance when, quote, I heard the shooting and the place exploded. He rushed in, saw Malcolm lying on the stage, and, quote, grabbed a suspect who he said some people were chasing. As I brought him to the front of the ballroom, the crowd began beating me and the suspect, Patrolman Hoy said. He said he put this man, not otherwise identified later for newsmen, into a police car to be taken to the Wadsworth Avenue station. A late city edition of the same paper only indicated one person, Thomas Hagen, was captured at the scene. There is no further mention of a second suspect from then on. Because of the mystery surrounding the second suspect, several independent writers and lesser-known publications have wondered if he could have been a police agent, and several other questions follow. What was the other man arrested by Patrolman Hoy doing to make the crowd think him a suspect? The police never explained why they didn't release this suspect's name as they did with Thomas Hagen's. Who was the, quote, thin-lipped, olive-skinned man with slanted eyes, end quote, who followed Malcolm in Africa and Europe and fit the description of the mysterious second man allegedly arrested at the scene of the crime? Was there a second man arrested at the scene of the crime, as the early editions of the New York papers said? If so, and he disappeared while in the custody of the police, was there government complicity in the murder? Let's picture uh, from February 1965, that is Malcolm X lying dead or dying on the stage of the Audubon Ballroom in uh, uptown Manhattan. Uh, his followers are surrounding him, and uh, as it happens, a police agent is attempting mouth-to-mouth -mouth, uh, resuscitation. That's Gene Roberts. That's Gene Roberts, uh, an agent of the uh, Bureau of Special Services in New York. What uh, did you determine his role to be? Uh, he was a member of uh, Malcolm's bodyguard. He had infiltrated the organization, had, uh, had gotten fairly close in, uh, but I don't think he had a role in the, a direct role in the assassination. There has never been any proof, and he, he of course, has denied it. In your investigation, did you find any misconduct on the part of the authorities? Uh, I found um, evidence of negligent behavior by the New York police. Um, they discovered two weeks before Malcolm was assassinated that a plot was afoot against his life. They knew where it was coming from. I don't believe they knew the exact day or time. In fact, that was, that was not set until Hayer and his friends met the night before they did it. This is immediately afterward. This is um, 
uh, Talmadge Hare, Talmadge X Hare, a uh, black Muslim, one of the assassins, the only man we know to have been an assassin, uh, being caught outside the ballroom. He was caught both by the crowd and by three police officers, as you can uh, see here. And this is uh, Hare in custody in police headquarters of, uh, within an hour later. Um, now, as of, uh, as of the day Malcolm died, that was the total sum of police knowledge as to who did it. There was an investigation that uh, ran over the next week or ten days, and two more men were arrested. Uh, first, uh, this man here, that's uh, Norman 3X Butler, and uh, this man here, Thomas 15X Johnson. They were both members of the Harlem Mosque of uh, what was then called the Nation of Islam. You have written uh, two books. Your latest edition uh, brings out some new information. Essentially, what's the difference in those two editions? Right. Well, these three men have been in prison for uh, going on 14 years. Uh, the, the first edition of my book essentially supported the state theory of the case that these guys were probably guilty. Uh, I had doubts even then about Butler and Johnson, but the verdict was in. There was no new evidence and no way to, uh, to uh, really powerfully suggest their innocence. Since then, this man, Talmadge Hare, after a long silence in which uh, he uh, refused to say anything to protect uh, the nation of Islam, has begun to talk. Then, after 14 years, the only man to confess to the murder broke his silence. After the interview was arranged, I wondered what it would be like. You know, Mujahid Abdul Halim. Yes. Uh, you have been in prison for 14 years. That's correct. And you are now granting the first television interview since you have been convicted of killing Malcolm X. Why have you at this time given permission for this interview? Well, basically, uh, only because uh, for a long time I, I have wanted to and I have hoped that someday, you know, we could uh, really get at the truth in regards to the case. Um, as you probably know, uh, my two co-defendants, uh, Norman Butler and Thomas Johnson, have always maintained the innocence in the case. And uh, even during the trial, I had stated myself that they, that they were not involved in the killing of Malcolm X, you know. And uh, this is an opportunity to get, get it out before the uh, public. And um, hopefully uh, it may have some effect. And I would like to see the brothers exonerated. At the trial, you pleaded guilty. You said that you were one of the persons involved in the assassination. This is correct. If you said that you were involved at that time, you also said at that time that these two brothers were not involved, but they didn't believe you then. What is the difference in the information you're bringing forth now that would convince someone that you're now giving a more accurate story? Well, at the time, I had uh, stated on the uh, witness stand that uh, the brothers was not involved, but I was asked to uh, give names of the individuals who was. Uh, involved in the, in the case with me. And at that time, uh, I didn't give the names um, of the other brothers that, that uh, took part in, in the, uh, the assassination or the killing of Malcolm X. I didn't give the names. And because I didn't give the names, it was felt that, uh, well, perhaps uh, I was just trying to uh, free the other brothers. I was trying to um, take the weight myself and uh, protect, protect them. And this seems to have been the feelings at that time. You know, this, this is the way that things was, was, was going. 
but I couldn't, um, at the time, there was, was a lot of things involved. Uh, such, uh, you know, I, I just really, I really didn't feel that I could um, state names. Um, I didn't, I had to uh, disassociate myself from the um, Nation of Islam at the time. Uh, I said that I wasn't a Muslim. Things like this, of course, I was trying to uh, protect the Nation of Islam at the time. I, did, I, did, I didn't want to, like, draw the nation into it on, on my part. So I was really trying to protect the nation, right? But it got to a point, originally when the trial first started, I actually felt that the brothers uh, would be um, cut loose. Why were you trying to protect the Nation of Islam? Well, when I said I was trying to protect the Nation of Islam, my own involvement uh, in the case was basically um, based on my, on my own uh, religious convictions at the time. Um, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad uh, was the uh, leader of the Nation of Islam at the time. Uh, we referred to him as being the Messenger of Allah. Um, and there was a conflict uh, with uh, Malcolm at that time, you know, internal conflict in the community. And uh, so I, I felt that if I had um, made it known that um, I was indeed a Muslim at the time, that I was indeed uh, a member of the um, Nation of Islam at that time, that it, it wouldn't be a good thing for me to do. Were you, you know, involved? It was, it was better for me to appear as being uh, an outsider but yet involved in the case. Was the assassination a conspiracy? concocted by the Nation of Islam? This, this, this is, is, is a good question, okay. Um, the way that I got involved, involved in the case, as I said earlier, was because of the conflict between Malcolm and Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And um, there were certain statements that Malcolm had made in regards to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Accusations uh, that uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad had uh, fathered children by other women, things like this here. Um, a lot of uh, other statements that was being made. And most of the Muslims at the time uh, just actually felt that uh, Malcolm was slandering the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, that um, he was defaming him, that he was lying, you know. And this uh, led to me uh, really getting involved because uh, as I had stated in my own affidavit, affidavit to the court in regards to uh, the innocence of the other two brothers, I stated in that affidavit how I had gotten involved in the case and how I um, was approached um, in the first place um, by two brothers. Uh, I gave their names. You were recruited, were you not? I guess you could say yes, I was. Um, I was approached by two brothers. Um, brothers that I knew, uh, I was in the uh, Nation of Islam at the time. They were in the Nation of Islam at the time. Um, they pretty much knew what my uh, feelings was in regards to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. I had a lot of uh, respect, a lot of love for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Um, I had, uh, you know, no no idea really at the time of of uh, the validity of what Malcolm was saying, some of the things that he was saying, and I, like most other Muslims at that time, you know, we, we uh, were referred to as, uh, what, black Muslims back in those days. And most of us felt that Malcolm was just outright lying. So when I was approached in regards to it, and I was asked my feelings in regards to it, I said, I thought it was bad. I thought it was just, you know, this is a disgrace. What happened on that day, February 21st, 1965? 
that morning, and I would say really uh, the, the night before, me and uh, the other individuals that I mentioned, um, we had decided that uh, we was going to um, move on Malcolm. We was going to um, kill him if we possibly could uh, on the 21st. And uh, we drew up a strategy, how we was going to uh, go into the ballroom, where we was going to sit, and uh, what we was going to do. And um, knowing that there would be a crowd there, we figured that uh, it's a possibility that we could do it. That's what we did. What was that strategy, and what did you do? Basically, it was um, for us um, to first make sure that uh, there would be no searching. So the uh, first of us to uh, approach the door would know that if indeed uh, someone was to search, we would just turn around and we would not enter. But on approaching the uh, ballroom, no one searched. So this meant that we could go right in. Um, we are all from out of town. Most of the people uh, didn't recognize us anyway. So we just came in as uh, regular uh, people interested in the program. And our strategy was basically for me and uh, the other brother named uh, uh, to sit down front. The ballroom uh, was broken up into different sections. We sat on the left-hand side in the front. Um, brother named myself, uh, right in the front row. Uh, there was two brothers uh, sitting behind me. And uh, brother... I had a 45, the Luger, um, the sort of shotgun. And our strategy was, as soon as uh, the minister came out to speak, as soon as he opened up his uh, speech, that um, would fire the shotgun. That um, myself, we would fire our guns in the direction of Malcolm. And this is exactly what we did. Um, with that, there was another individual who sat in the back. His name was His thing was to cause uh, a distraction. Right at the time of when the, the minister was getting ready to open up, he chewed someone up going into his pocket. And at the same, you know, at, around the same time, he threw a, a smoke bomb to cause uh, a little distraction, right? And basically, this, this, this is what we did. So we went in, and we did just that. You seem to be different now. Have you really changed? I, can't, I would have to say, yes, I've changed. Um, I don't know if, if uh, anyone could understand. You know, when you have religious convictions, and you base them on a certain thing, and then you have to change that. Uh, I have changed simply because our whole, uh, the whole nation of Islam has gone through a whole transition with the leadership of the Honorable Wallace uh, D. Muhammad, who really, I would say, um, is responsible for my changing. Because um, when he came into office as leader of this community, and he said certain things in regards to his father, I realized then that, in truth, that many of us really worshipped the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. We looked at him as if he was some kind of a god, you know. And his son, his son broke him down and explained to him as, my father is only a man like any other man. He explained that his father had weaknesses just like any other man might have weaknesses and he even said that uh his his father had fathered uh some children by other women 
Now, when I heard that, I can only describe it as if you can imagine taking a piece of clay that that, that has to be balled up and made all over again. You know, I had I had you know it really uh, it really balled me up, and I had to really uh, do some deep thinking on that because I always felt that the truth would be known in regards to Malcolm, but for a long time I felt that Malcolm was really lying, that Malcolm was really wrong. You see. And I, I always felt that the truth someday would come out, but I never, I never, I never really believed that at that time that uh, it would come out that Malcolm was 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 really speaking truth. So um, with the changes that that it came about, that it came about in the Nation of Islam with the leadership of the Honorable Wallace D. Muhammad, well, I had to change too. Hare's naming of his co-conspirators now even stirs up the tempest further. He says he's not sure who above him in the Muslims gave the order, or if indeed it was the Muslims. Do you believe that you were used, that your deep devotion for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was used to manipulate you? It's possible, it's possible. Um, at the time, you know, no one could convince me that um, that was the case, but I realize now that it's possible. It's very possible that I could have been a pawn. It's very possible that uh, someone just knew I was a good candidate to, you know, do this. And I could have been manipulated. I, 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 it's hard for me to say. I couldn't say who may have done this. I really couldn't tell you who handed down the uh, order to move on Malcolm. I really couldn't tell you. All I, all I could tell you as much as I, I have told you now, um, I was approached. Somebody approached the people who approached me. You know, and I can't say who approached them. It's possible that we may never know for sure who killed Malcolm X. But those who love freedom and justice should never stop trying. If what Malcolm stood for can be silenced by intimidating his intended beneficiaries into silence, then he lived and died in vain. He didn't. The great actor Ossie Davis, in giving Malcolm's eulogy, said, quote, Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. And in honoring him, we honor the best in ourselves. on this program are not necessarily those of Pepsi-Cola Company. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Tony Brown. And uh, he was uh, doing a follow-up. Uh, this was done in 1981. As he mentioned, uh, 1972 was the first uh, investigation he had done into the assassination of Malcolm X. This one, of course, uh, featured the first uh, filmed interview uh, with the gentleman who considered himself uh, a member of the Nation of Islam and a religious devotee uh, who carried out the assassination of Malcolm X uh, confessed uh, during the uh, trial some one year later uh, from the assassination. And then, of course, in uh, 1981, 15 years later, turns over the names of the other individuals that were part of the assassination squad. Yet, uh, he claims he, does, he did not know who handed them the order and whether or not he was manipulated uh, in the whole assassination process. 
interesting, interesting interview. Now, in regard to uh, what happened this week, uh, we have a report, an interview uh, with two of the investigators who were involved in uh, the exoneration of Butler and Johnson. Butler, of course, still alive, and Johnson uh, has since uh, passed away. Let's listen in. Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam spent 22 years in prison for a crime they did not commit. These men became victims of the same racism and injustice that were the antithesis of all that Malcolm X stood for. This doesn't solve Malcolm's murder, but at least it, it brings more uh, truth to the matter of what actually happened. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome to The Debrief. I'm Chris Lorioso in for David Ushery. Today, we delve deeper into a fascinating and sometimes heartbreaking story of justice delayed for far too long. I am joined by Vanessa Hopkin, who's the Director of Special Litigation at the Innocence Project, and Deborah Francois of the Shanus Law Firm, they represent the family of Khalil Islam, and they represent Muhammad Aziz, two men who were falsely convicted of the killing of Malcolm X. It is really an earth-shattering story. And Deborah, let me start with you. Uh, can you talk to me just from a personal standpoint? Uh, the work that you have done has, has so many levels to it, but perhaps the most important one is the human level. Uh, there's a man who spent more than 20 years in prison, and another one who died after he spent more than 20 years in prison, whose names are now cleared. Exactly. I mean, this has been an exoneration in the making for 55, 56 years. And as you touched, it's an understatement to say that Muhammad, Khalil, and their family suffered tremendously. The two men combined spent 42 years in prison, several of them in solitary confinement. At the time of their conviction, they were torn from their families including their young children who are as young as a year old, and their children have to grow up without a father and bearing the stigma that their fathers were labeled as the assassins of one of the greatest civil rights activists in the world. So they have suffered tremendously, and it's just been a lot for them to take in. I wonder, Vanessa, one of the antecedent questions here really is, what evidence was there ever that these two men were involved in the assassination of Malcolm X? Well, in short, there was no reliable evidence. Um, They were convicted at a trial where the state presented conflicting eyewitness accounts um, of what happened that day. And so you had eyewitness testimony, which is the leading cause of wrongful conviction. But I think in this case, um, it was pretty apparent from the transcripts that um, witnesses were coached and their accounts just conflicted with one another with their prior Um, testimony. And so there was not a shred of reliable evidence to implicate them. And in fact, both had um, alibis at the time. Mr. Aziz had a leg injury and had even seen a doctor earlier that day and and was at home. And there was additional evidence uncovered through the post-conviction reinvestigation that you know, further supported the alibi and undermined the eyewitness testimony. 